We'll be continuing on from where we left off this morning in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Just for those who weren't with us, you can find this morning's sermon will be put up online this week if you want to catch up with, with what you've missed. But we'll just read it once again from chapter 2, verse 1. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God. And there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. This morning we really unpacked the beginning of that and first of all then and we understood this charge that has been given to Timothy by Paul as we said this morning in chapter 1 and, and the distinctives of the sin that is happening in Ephesus at the time whenever Timothy is left by Paul. We went through a number of those things this morning and I don't want to go through them again this evening but the main takeaway is at the end of chapter 1 Paul then gets down to brass tacks. He gets down to initiating the manual, so to speak, of the church. He's explained to Timothy all the difficulties he's going to face. He's explained to Timothy who the charge is from. He's tried to instruct Timothy to have a loving approach and remember Paul's own testimony of how he acted in disobedience through not knowing the truth. And he says, first of all then... I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. In other words, before we do anything, Timothy, before you do anything, it has to come through prayer. And we looked this morning, we took some time when we went through the Old Testament and the New Testament, looking at what prayer is. And more than that, how prayer, is, how prayer unfolds and works through the sovereignty and the providence of God. Since God is sovereign, since all things work through his providential hand, we understand that this question arises, particularly for those who don't fully understand sovereignty. Why pray if God has already planned what is going to come to pass? So we really tackled that, that question that comes from many people by looking at Hezekiah and how King Hezekiah was told that he was going to die, he then fell on his knees and wept and faced the wall and prayed and lamented and called out to the Lord. And before Isaiah had left the courtyard, the words of Hezekiah reached the Lord in prayer and God then changed his mind and told him to go back and that he had heard his prayer. We looked at many different passages, particularly through the prophets, of how whenever God wanted calamity and God wanted destruction to fall upon his people through just uh, punishment for their disobedience the first thing he would charge the prophets not to do would be to pray as we saw with Jeremiah do not pray I will not hear your prayers 
And we looked at how the church then, or the people of God then, were still going through the routine, still going through the ritual, still going through the sacrifices. They were still fasting, they were still doing all these things, and yet God knew their inner being. God, even as we read in Jeremiah, as he said, why do you come to the place with my name and do all these things, and yet you're still practicing ungodliness? We also looked at how sometimes the prophets confess themselves that if they were not to pray for the people, if they were not to intercede for the people, that they would be sinning. And hopefully through the course of this morning we really unpack the sovereignty aspect of God and how prayer is completely part of God's plan for redemption in all people. We understand, since God is sovereign, that there is no other way for anybody to come to save in faith apart from God's hand. This is why, first of all, Timothy, Paul says, we have to pray. It is not through the power of man. It is not through the power of eloquent words. It is not through money or anything else or ministries. It comes only through God's providential hand reaching down and softening the hearts of sinful men and women, enlightening them to their sin. And that's why we believe, as we've talked about in previous sermons, monergistic Salvation as opposed to synergistic. Monergistic as in it is God alone who saves. He regenerates the sinner in their heart and mind, enabling them to have faith in the truth of the gospel. Synergistic being, people falsely say that we have it innately in ourselves. If that was the case, then I could firmly boast, so could you, that we chose the gospel because we're smarter than other people, we know more things than other people, or whatever you want to quit it to. The reality is that I am saved today under no means or anything that I've done in my own self. It is purely a gift and a gracious gift of the Lord, unmerited, pure mercy, that any of us can confess that we possess Christ's righteousness has been counted to us. That being the case, we looked at the necessity of prayer, and then we finished up, and I want us just to turn back to it with regards to the book of Acts. And we were finished off at the end of chapter 7 of the book of Acts with the stoning of Stephen. And hopefully what I want to do this evening is I want to try to unpack and touch briefly what we read at the end of supplications and prayers for all people. And it says, For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, who desires all people to be saved. And what we read this morning as we finished off was chapter 7, verse 60. And it says, And falling to his knees, talking about the stoning of Stephen, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. As we finish this morning in this tour of necessity of prayer and the necessity for us to be interceding for all people, we looked at this example of Stephen as well as others and how we see here Stephen in the midst of being stoned and in the midst of falling and being succumbed to the pain and to the breaking of his body by rocks and stones, by those who confess godliness, which is nothing more than pure religion, and that he proclaimed to them the truth of the gospel, even in the point of death, he still felt it upon himself. It was still incumbent upon his heart to intercede and to pray, even for those who were killing him. As he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I want to build on that a little bit. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. 
We have Jesus here speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, we come to verse 43. And whenever Jesus tells us that we are called to love our enemies. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. As if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not, do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a command of Jesus. This is an understanding of what it means to be truly regenerate. We are called to pray for salvation. We are called to pray for those who persecute us. We're not to pray that they'll stop persecuting us. We're to pray that they will be redeemed. Pray that they will be enlightened. Pray that they will be saved. The same way that we looked at this morning, at the midst of the last words that Stephen said when he's being stoned, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. It was, it was Paul who was standing there giving approval, and then it was Paul who was the one who was going to be changed from being the persecutor to being the person who proclaimed the gospel. Therefore, we're called to love our enemies in prayer. And we understand that whenever Paul says in 1 Timothy, you turn back there with me, please. We says that prayers are to be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. As we briefly talked about this morning. For kings. In fact the Greek word there is for emperor. The emperor at that time he talked about was Nero. One of the worst persecutors of the church. Emperor of, the, of Rome. And I was reading this evening before I came in here to speak. And I read of one of the things that Nero did. There was a massive fire in the Roman city of Rome. And it took out some two-thirds of the entire city. Nero is cited to have actually started the fire and to make sure that he didn't get blamed for it, he decided to blame the Christians. So he rounded up a number of the key leaders of the Christian church and he started to heavily persecute them and torture them so that they would confess and point to other Christians and say that they did it. Long story short, he eventually got the entire city behind this false accusation that the Christians had started the fire. So he went and he started to kill all the Christians. Now there's many ways that he did that. He did that through dogs ripping people apart. He did it through being crucified. He did it being thrown to the lands. He had sort of elaborate ways to be able to kill Christians. But one of his favorite ways was whenever it became towards the end of the day and night was starting to come, he would take the Christians and light them on fire so that he could light up the city. It's a way for the gospel to be illuminated. We know nothing, nothing of what Paul is saying here when he says, I want not only you to pray for all people, but I want you to pray for people in high positions, for kings, for emperors. And the readers of this text, including Timothy, understand that included Nero. But he cites why. 
He says, for kings and all those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. We are to pray for those who are in high positions so that the church may live peaceably, so that we may not have persecution. For many of us, we in this generation don't understand true persecution, but yet it's coming. All the more we are called to pray that those in positions of leadership would be changed and would be redeemed and would be saved. So he cites the prayer for all people. He cites the prayer for those who are in high positions. But sometimes when we come to looking at this, we can immediately have an argument thrown at us, which is the prayer of Christ. And we find that in, the gospel, in John sorry, chapter 17. This is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we're going to be touching on a little bit here of what we're going to unpack, hopefully God willing, next Sunday. We're going to really unpack that statement, God desires all people to be saved. We looked at it a little bit this morning when we said how that all people is all encompassing. There's no people outside of saving grace, whether they're Gentile, Jew, free or slave. It does not matter. It's all people whom he desires to be saved. But we read here in chapter 17 in verse 2. It says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus understands that he is able to give eternal life to all whom God has given him. We read in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you give me out of the world. Verse 8 for I have given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Now many people have come to this passage, and this is the, the club, this is the stick of do not pray for those in the world to come to salvation. Do not pray for those to come to be redeemed. Because Jesus didn't pray for the world. Therefore we do not pray for the world. But do we understand what Jesus is saying there? Because what Jesus is citing there is something that equally is despised and used as a club. Which is the turning aside of the quality of God in salvation with regards to predestination. With regards to it is God who gives us as an inheritance to Christ. So to read it again, it says, I am praying for them, them being the twelve, them being everyone who is going to come after the twelve, them being every person throughout the history of salvation who are going to come to the realization of Christ. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We'll go on a little bit before you unpack that. You read in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
I believe Jesus, what he's praying for here whenever he says, I'm not praying for the world, is he is praying for specific things in this high priestly prayer. He's praying that those whom in all creation, throughout all history, who have been chosen and elected from the foundation of the world, he is praying for them. Those who have not been born at this stage, those who would call upon the name of Jesus at the very last before he comes back. He is not saying and citing that all the world are going to do this. He says, I'm not praying for all the world because all the world are not going to be saved. It's one of the things we're going to unpack. How if God desires all people to be saved that all people are not to be saved? We'll look at it next week. The difference between the desire, which is his commanded will, the things he desires to come to pass but do not come to pass, and his elected or decreed will. But we'll get to that next week. We'll touch on it briefly this evening. And what he does there is he unpacks a little bit and he says, I kept them in your name which you have given me and I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. It is a doctrine that we hold fast to. Those who are truly saved, those who are truly drawn and given to Christ will never lose the saving grace that began in them, the justification will lead to sanctification, the sanctification will lead to glorification. You cannot lose your salvation, some would say, I don't like that statement. I prefer perseverance of the saints. Because not one person in here truly, ultimately knows whether or not six months from now or ten years from now, you will go back to your old pagan ways. We will only know for certain the day that you die. There is those who right now are in the world and are full of the lusts of the flesh and we do not know where they will be 10 years from now. But we do know one thing to be true. Those who profess Christ and godliness and cling to it and finish the race and continue all their days denying the self will be kept not by their own power but by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can unpack that with the parables of Jesus and the sowing of the seeds and, and many others. But the, the example that Christ uses here, which is what I want to stick on, is he says, I have lost none of them except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Who's that? Well, we might know it's Judas. Judas, who was called by Jesus to be amongst and part of the twelve. He is described here, was lost because he was the son of destruction. So the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he's, he's citing there Psalm 41. Turn and take a left from your Bible to Psalm 41. Now, a portion of this psalm is also cited in Acts 1, verse 20, but we don't have time to turn there. But this is a psalm of speaking about Christ. And it says in verse 7 of 41, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is Christ speaking of Judas. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Jesus cites this very verse and you turn back to where we were in the Gospel of John in chapter 13. 
When we jump in verse 18, this is coming off the heels of, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It says in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. When it does take place, you may believe that I am he, I am Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who, I, who sent me. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. And for those of us who know the story of that night before Jesus went to the cross, the story unfolds with Judas betraying Christ with a kiss. As he said there, this is his friend who betrayed him. So back to, turn the page to chapter 17. Back to verse 12. Again, this his high, high priestly prayer. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has lost, was lost, except the son of destruction. Why was Judas called the son of destruction? Just before we turn to look at that, I just want to read again from verse 20 of chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus cites it there. He's not just speaking whenever he says, I am praying for them. It's not just the twelve. It's also us. Christ's prayer to God was for all who would call upon the name of the Lord. All who would be drawn by God. But there is some who will be lost. There will be some who will see firsthand the miraculousness of creation. Judas saw the miracles of Christ displayed when he walked on water. He saw the, the feeding of the 5,000. He saw the lame healed, the blind healed. He heard the gospel over and over and over and over again. But he didn't have ears to hear it. He was not able to truly be changed and, and truly believe. And just like Paul cites for those to be put out of the church, for those to be given over to Satan, as soon as Judas took that piece of bread, that morsel off Jesus, the devil entered into him and accomplished his work. For he was not part of the elect. This son of destruction, we, we understand it for those who understand Romans 9. We turn there. Romans 9, verse 22. Paul's true 
expounding of the gospel in the book of Romans where he talks about God's sovereign choice and he says in chapter 9 verse 22 what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory Judas was a vessel of destruction Judas had to play a part within the scriptures being fulfilled to be the one that was spoken of throughout the Old Testament who would betray the Christ who would give him over to those who wanted to crucify him he was being patiently endured by God even though he was not truly his offspring his son, his daughter he was always a vessel prepared for destruction and he was a vessel prepared for destruction as it says here in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy Paul states there's two vessels vessels of mercy vessels of destruction but not to take this out of context, I think it's important to read what Paul has said before this. And we can start from verse 11. Trying to explain to us what it means to be a vessel for mercy or a vessel for destruction. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. We have to remember this and the reason why we pray. If we are to see change in the city of Armagh, change in our families, change in the church, it is not by human will or exertion. It's not how hard we work. It's not about us. We are called to exhort ourselves in prayer, labor in prayer, wrestle in prayer, to lift up all peoples, no matter how sinful or how wretched to sadden they say they are, we are called to pray for them because it does not depend on us. It does not depend on how good or how well versed we are or what tricks we can do or how much toys we give away or whatever the tools are for the modern evangelical church. It is all of nothing unless God truly opens the heart, opens the ears and makes those attentive. It does not matter how much you sugarcoat it. It does not matter what attributes of God that you hide. Sovereignty is one thing people want to hide. Well, people will understand that. No one will understand the gospel if they are dead in sin unless God moves upon them. It is, so it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture said to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy 
on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. This is the reality of the God whom we love and whom we serve. As we said in the beginning, we are not deserving of grace of anything we've done. There's not one thing that any of us have done before a holy God that we deserve grace. The reality is that we think in our flesh that God should show us grace. We want to command God and say it's not fair unless he shows grace. But the reality is it is fair and just for God not to intervene at all in our sinful nature and let all humanity go to hell. The reality is it is in his mercy, in his undeserved grace, in his act of graciousness that anybody suit. So then, then he has mercy on whomever he wills. Whomever God wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is one of the things we need to unpack with the verse that we look at next week. That God desires all people to be saved. If nobody can resist his will, then why are not all people saved? And the reality of it is, is that all people will not be saved, we're not universalists, only those whom he chooses to show mercy to. God's desire can be broken into, we'll look at it big time next week, which is his will of decree and his will of command. We have the Ten Commandments. It is God's will that nobody murders, yet we murder. It is God's command or God's decree that the sun come up tomorrow. No one can stop it. So he goes on. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For whom can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul doesn't even give a reason here. He just simply says, you are but dust. How dare we even think or argue back to whom God is allowed to choose or not to choose? Well, what is molded said to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and one and one and use another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, just like Judas? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If anyone comes to us whenever we profess the character of God and whom God is, whenever we say that it is only the gospel alone that has the power unto salvation, Romans 1, it is the gospel alone. That convicts. It is the gospel alone that enlightens, and it is God's sovereign hand alone that enables any of us to accept the gospel. We know this to be true. First of all, then, in light of that, 
I urge 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, regardless of race, gender, or stature, and particularly for kings and all those in high positions, because it is good for us that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. We'll unpack the rest of that next week. What we have to cling to from this morning and this evening is it is through the power of prayer. It is the interceding of us on behalf of the people in our man who are still in darkness, on behalf of brothers and sisters in our families and uncles and aunts or anybody else. We have to intercede and plead and pray and come before God and say, it's not how I live that is going to save them. It is not even my knowledge that's going to save them. It is you, God, alone that are going to lead them to save in faith. If we want to see a, a movement of the Holy Spirit come out from these four walls of this church, if we want to see what is, quote-unquote, a revival, it starts in prayer. Tomorrow night, by God's grace, we'll meet here for prayer. It should be the most important thing on our entire calendar to come before God and to see him glorified through us lifting up prayers to see those lost in darkness redeemed and him stretching out his hand and filling this church and filling all the churches within our man and this world with people who have got redeemed through the power of prayer. As we said this morning, there is coming a day that we read of in Revelation whenever there will be no more interceding prayers. There will be no more prayers going up before the Father. He will take his Holy Spirit and the restraint of the Holy Spirit of this world. He will rapture his church to be with him and the pagans and the sinners will be left here for utter destruction with no interceding prayer. In the Old Testament, the prophets were told to stop praying. In the New Testament, as it unfolds to its climax in church history and world history, the church will be taken. There will be no more opportunity for the gospel. As it says in those woes we've looked at in the past months, each time there was a woe, no one repented. Nobody turned. For there was no one to proclaim the gospel. And there was no one to pray that their hearts would be softened. And that God would outstretch his undeserved mercy upon others in darkness like us. Therefore, we worship God, we cling to that truth, we do not change the gospel, contextualize it, we do not make new improvements upon it, we simply preach the truth, stand in the truth, hold fast to the truth, and wait in God's timing, and hope and pray that those whom we know will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to help us, Lord, to come to terms in the mystery, Lord, of how your hand works through the gospel. Let us just have faith and believe, Lord, and to keep praying, Father, for you to save and redeem those whom we love. And for us to, and for us to pray, Lord, that you would save and redeem, Lord, those who persecute your church those who hate the truth of your gospel. Father, it is easy for us to pray for those whom we love. 
But can you convict us, Father, to pray for those whom we may not like, who we may not love, just as Paul cites Timothy to pray even for Nero, who set on fire your sons and daughters to light up the city of Rome. Lord, we know nothing of that sort of persecution. We praise you tonight for that. We praise you, Lord, for the goodness and the kindness and the mercy that you have lavished upon us to be in the Armagh, Father, with no persecution of Christians, enriched, Father God, with the things that we have, Lord, with homes that have food and warmth and clothes in them, and it all comes from you. Father, we thank you most of all for the mercy that is undeserved for us sinners, Lord, whom you saved so that you may be glorified and that your election sovereign choice may continue. Father, we pray for all those that you have in our hearts now as we sit in your presence. May they call on the name of their Saviour. May they realize the depths of sin and darkness that they're in. And may they turn, Father, from the desires of this world and worship and serve you. Father, help us be bold in the proclamation of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand, we'll close in worship.